0: you would this morning please take out your Bibles and open them up to the book of Daniel. We resume our study there this morning. As if Daniel is not already complex enough, this morning we are at probably the most complex paragraph in Daniel's book. It's not only complex in Hebrew, the language is difficult, it's complex in English. It's hard enough to read this one in English, and yet there is something rich and beautiful here if we have the patience and the willingness to dig and find it, because it's there. And in that regard, it is the Word of God made, availed or revealed, I should say, to us for the purpose of understanding and so often what Christians do is we get so lost in the details that we miss what we're really supposed to understand from paragraphs like this and that's the richness, the beauty, the depth, the sovereignty and the love of God. And I'm not being oversimplistic. That really is when it comes to these more difficult paragraphs, we have to ask ourselves, what is the writer really trying to tell me here? If if I if I set aside the details for just a moment and I think, what is the message of this paragraph? it's there and it's here for us. I'm not going to spend tons of time giving introductory comments because we just need to dive right in and get started. We are in Daniel chapter 9 this morning. We are looking at the last eight verses of that chapter, verses 20 to 27. And so without further delay, beloved of God, this is an errant word, starting in verse 20. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince that there shall be seven weeks. And then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with square and moat, but in a troubled time. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. To the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me for understanding and grace. Father, this is your word. It is before us now as we consider it, open up our minds and hearts to receive from you, to receive the rich bounty of truth and goodness and beauty that lie herein. Give us grace to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. And not just so that we can have academic knowledge, but so that we can be transformed by the true and living word. Is through Christ we pray. Amen. It's been in my memory, because they've been doing the play here, The Wizard of Oz, Frank Baum's classic story, The Wizard of Oz. I'm sure you know the story and have seen the movie. Uh, it scared the daylights out of me when I was a kid. Those, that green witch and those flying monkeys just, just were not natural. And um, I can remember the first time I saw it and thought, I am never watching that again. Uh, but I have watched it many times since. Uh, we know the story. Dorothy is magically transported to, from her home in Kansas, and she goes to the place, Oz, and, and what she's doing for the rest of the story, the whole rest of the story, once she lands and is, meets all the munchkins, She's trying to get back home. She realizes that she wanted to be out of Kansas so badly, and then, as always, the grass is always greener on the other side until you get over there and recognize there is junk there, too. She realizes that in Oz, and so for the rest of the movie, she's trying to get home. She has all kinds of encounters with creatures and witches and wizards and little people and trees that throw apples. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff happen while she is on over in Oz, but what is the consistent theme of the movie? What is the one thing that just comes back again and again and again? Follow the yellow brick road. You know, rather the munch can say, follow the yellow brick road. <laughs> um. <laughs> sorry. I've just magically been transported to the Wizard of Oz. Um, follow the yellow brick road. And there's a reason that they keep saying that, because the characters in the story know something fundamentally that Dorothy doesn't know. It takes Dorothy a a moment to figure it out, that there is mystery ahead. There is all kinds of unknowns ahead, and Dorothy's not always going to be sure what to do or where to go. She's going to come to places where it looks inviting, but she has this refrain drilled into her mind Follow the yellow brick road. Stay on the yellow brick road. Don't depart from the yellow brick road. Why? Because that's leading you where you need to go. Oh, beloved, it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of what it means to follow God in a world that is, uh, we could call it an exile or a wilderness. There is a pathway of righteousness that God has placed us on. And He has said, yes, there's going to be mystery, there's going to be obstacles, there will be hardships. But it stay, follow the pathway of God, and it'll lead you where you need to go and be. And yes, there are going to come crossroads where you don't know what to do. There are going to come obstacles in the road that tangle up your feet and make you stumble and fall. But whatever you do, get back up and stay on that pathway. That's the message of God. This morning, this present paragraph that we've just read in Daniel chapter 9 is a mysterious paragraph. It is difficult. And when I tell you, I'm not, it is accurate to say this is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible itself. And for different reasons. The language is tough. The ideas are tough. I'm mean, just reading it in English and trying to keep the weeks separated. And how do we understand the weeks? And, you know, you've got a seven weeks and then 62 weeks and then one week. And something's going to happen, half that week and then half the other week. I mean, you know, and it's, it's difficult it's difficult. The symbols that are used here with the weeks are mysterious. But what is, what is the implication? And I'm not going to shock you by the implication of the paragraph. The implication of the paragraph is this. Suffering of God's, uh, in God's people in history is just a reality. You're going to go through all these weeks. You use the word distressed times. There's going to be Desolations. He is crowding out this paragraph with very graphic words so that we understand you're not going to get away from this, beloved, that the history of God's people is suffering. And it will continue until Jesus comes back. We sang about that earlier, that beautiful song. So amid all the difficulties, a theme of assurance runs through this paragraph. I mean, think about this. How do we even start the paragraph of weeks? Is Gabriel the angel telling Daniel, God is answering your prayer? What a p- so, so when we look at this, what is the hope of God's people? Well, it's hopeful that God answers Daniel, right? We can, we can agree on that. That's hopeful. God answers his prayer. right? It's, it's, it's hopeful that God is present with his people through suffering. That's what he's kind of given us this assurance. Through the mystery of life, I am with you. Always, as Jesus said, even to the end of the age. It's hopeful that we're not left to ourselves, right? Daniel is not just left to twist in the wind. God is with him. And so there is so much hope here. Hope in hard times is just the reality. Hope is, I mean, hard times is when we need hope the most. So we revel, revel, glory, magnify, celebrate that hope. Because, beloved, that's, that's what we have in Christ, and it is a rich and beautiful, wonderful gift. For these last eight verses of Daniel 9, uh, just a few house-cleaning things, these last eight verses of Daniel 9, so often folks come to it with their interpretation in mind, and they want to make their interpretation fit the text. And it's natural. We, we get a framework in our minds, and we want to apply it. And I'm asking you this morning to maybe, if you can, Whatever framework you might have, just set it over here and let's examine the text together. That's what I did this past week. I set my framework down and I examined the text. And it was beautiful. Hard, but beautiful. So they often try to make the text fit the interpretation. A common way of actually, actually a very common way of interpreting Daniel 9 is to go to the life of Christ and work your way backwards. I'm going to suggest that we start with Daniel 9 and we work our way forward, i.e., we're going to start in the beginning and follow the yellow brick road, where we're going to see where the road takes us. Um, there are the interpretations of, of, to this particular paragraph, they're legion. I just read seven this week, and there was more that I didn't read. Seven different interpretations, and there's more that I didn't even read. And they range from taking it completely literal, everything, to completely symbolic, and to some spaces in between that spectrum. And so they're a legion, they're a lot, and some of them are, are good, um, they're, they're good frameworks, whether you agree with them or not. However we understand it, though, and whatever you walk away from this with this morning, I want us to agree on something. I, well, we, we need to agree on this pr- principle point, that the intent of it is to give hope to God's people through all the mysteries of life. If we can agree on that, I think we're getting the heart of why this was written for our benefit. So with all that in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see this morning, and it's this, that even through mystery, even through mystery, God leads his people. Even through mystery, God leads his people. So when we come to Daniel 9, so often people are so hot to trot to get to verses 24 to 27 that they just kind of skim over the first four verses, 20 to 23. Well, right here, the the whole context of this paragraph is is God's mysterious answer, and and I'm going to tell you why I'm calling it a mysterious answer here in just a moment, so I'll get to that. But what we're looking at here is, uh, verses 20 to 23 is this wonderful, gracious answer from God. It's really beautiful that we have, that Daniel takes time to lay this out. And this just, I don't know how, if you struggle to believe something. In prayer and in life, I want you to understand this morning, God, what it says in Isaiah, God longs to be gracious to his people. I love that passage. God longs to be gracious to his people. In our prayer life and in our life, beloved of God, God longs to be gracious to us. And this answer is a sign of God's longing to show his servant grace through prayer. And so we have this gracious answer. And and what I love is God doesn't hesitate. He answers. And it's so encouraging. Why? What is Daniel's posture in the prayer itself? If you remember back from last week, he comes to God expectantly. He comes to God expecting God to answer him. Why? Well, for one, he's grounding his prayer in truth, as we saw, and in God's promise. So he has this expectation, God is going to answer my prayer. We should pray that way. We should pray expectantly. We should pray with confidence and boldness, not because we get every single thing we want, but because God is good and true and right, and he will answer according to his promise and will. He says here in verse 20, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of the people of Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. So while he was speaking, praying, and confessing, in the midst of his prayer, what is he telling us? God is moving already. I'm in the middle of my prayer. And Daniel knows, Gabriel tells him, God is already moving to meet Daniel's prayer, to meet the need, and to work on behalf of Israel. And I love that. But right out of the gate, we actually have something here that is a hot-button issue of our day that I want to address. Um, so Daniel says, I was confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. What you would call that is Daniel is making a corporate confession of sin. He is confessing his sin and the sin of the people Israel. Now people in our day and time will point to this passage of scripture and say that we need to be making corporate confession for sins that were committed sometimes hundreds of years ago. Beloved of God, should we be sorry for the sins of our forebears? Yeah. Should we look at history and learn history and be and it hurt our heart a little bit that humans have done to stuff to other humans? Yes. We cannot use this as a justification to pray for repentance for the sins that people we have no connection with from 100 years ago or 200 years ago. And here's why. What is unique about Daniel's sin? The sin that Daniel is confessing is personal to Daniel. He says, my sin and the sin of my people. Daniel, though, is upright and righteous man. He is identifying himself with Israel in her sin, saying, I have done the things that she has done. And so the corporate confession here works because he's personally involved in it. I think, you know, Again, please don't hear the pastor of the chapel saying we shouldn't recognize past sin and and, and talk about it and talk frankly and talk openly and have hard conversations. Yes, but we cannot justify corporate confession by this passage. Can't do it unless we are personally involved in the sin. There was a church when I was in Mississippi. Here's a great example. Uh, they had knowingly barred black people from membership because they did not want black people in their church. They had done that within the 20th century. So their elders got up one Sunday morning and they prayed a prayer of repentance because some of those men could still remember life in that church. They confessed their sin publicly and they prayed a prayer of repentance for the whole body who was involved in that. I'm behind that 100% because there's personal involvement in the sin. Daniel here is confessing for Israel because Daniel is Israel. Not in the same way that Jesus or God is, but what I'm saying, he's identified with them and he has been complicit in their sin. So. Anyway, just some food for thought. But I love what we also learn from this. What does it tell us about confession of sin? It tells us that confession of sin is fundamental to our relationship with God. Why? Why is it so fundamental to our relationship with God? See, it's because it's through confession of sin that we show who we are. We are admitting our deep need for Jesus. I don't like to confess my sin to anybody or any more than anybody else in this room, but I understand that confession is so fundamental to us seeing our constant, deep, abiding need for Jesus. What are we doing when we're confessing, beloved? We're being honest. Being honest with God, as if God can see, so he can see anyway. But we're also, when we're confessing, being honest with ourselves. By God's grace, I'm not what I was. I'm not what I should be. I fail daily. Now, we have to own that before the Lord, not for him, but for us. Not for him, but for us to see with clarity who we are. We are told here that Gabriel came in swift flight while Daniel prayed. And Daniel makes a note here to mention it was at the evening sacrifice. Some people have speculated that Daniel was already back at the temple at this point and 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 would argue for a later writing of the book of Daniel. That is incorrect. Daniel, I mean, we already know when this took place, and we know uh, in 539 B.C., we know that the temple was not yet uh, written or um, rebuilt. But what it does is it tells you actually something more about Daniel. The liturgy of worship is in his heart. He is making note. He knows that it's about 3 p.m., which is when the evening sacrifice, around 3 p.m. is when the evening sacrifice would be made in Israel. And the the liturgy of worship is so ingrained in his heart as he's praying to God. He's saying, right now, we would be offering sacrifice. And what is he doing? He is offering a sacrifice of prayer. He can't sacrifice in the temple, so he's given God what he does have, which is this this time in prayer. And I love, while I was speaking in prayer the man, Gabriel, whom I had sent the vision at first, came to me in a swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice, Daniel has worship in his heart. He's not at the temple. But what does it tell us? In prayer, he's transported to the presence of God. In prayer, he sees himself in the presence of God. And beloved, talk about a great way to pray. What a wonderful example for us to follow in prayer. Verse 22, he made me understand, speaking with me, saying, Oh, Daniel, I have come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So Gabriel is sent to help Daniel fully understand God's purpose and plan. And I love this, because what is God doing? There's mystery. God is bringing revelation. Mystery is God ordained for the purpose of him bringing revelation to make it clear. So that's what he's doing. He's bringing revelation to Daniel, and he says, before Daniel even asked, God had purposed to answer him before the you know, at the beginning of your pleas, a word went out like a command, a word went out from the Lord before Daniel finished, but right at the beginning to answer him, and I love this, oh, we can't skip over, for you are greatly loved, beloved of God. What beautiful language here. God is driven to answer his servant because he loves him. He longs to be gracious to him. But it also, what does it tell us about Daniel? We've seen this before primarily in 1 John. It tells us that Daniel's identity is not just great prophet, great man of God. No, no, no. He is one who is greatly loved. If you're in Christ this morning, if you sit here and you are trusting in Christ for your salvation, you've believed the gospel, you have, have given over your sin to him and taken on his righteousness and life for yourself, your identity, beyond all your human features, is one greatly loved. Loved, in fact, so much that he spilt his blood for you. And there is no other identity marker that matches that or comes even close to that. However, whatever identity markers we give ourselves, they pale in comparison to that one fact that in Christ, we are greatly loved. And that is our identity. That's the identity we should be shouting from the rooftops. I love, you get two, you get two imperative verbs. That is the verb of command, or the tense of command, rather. Urgency. Consider, therefore, or therefore consider imperative, understand imperative. What is God telling Daniel to do? He's given him the command to know and understand the vision. And what is God about to do? About to provide the tools he needs to understand it. So he's commanding Daniel to do something, understand this, this is not if you can, this is, no, 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 understand this. And then he's going to say, now here's how you understand it. The same way Jesus would do with his disciples, he would give these parables that were mysterious and then he would say, here's the understanding, here's the meaning, because he wanted his people, his servants to know. So then, after we get through that first, we get what we're going to call the mystery of weeks. Verses 24 to 27. Four quick verses that let us in on the plan of God. So starting in verse 24, we read 70 weeks, or maybe your Bible might say 70 sevens. It's possible for either of those. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy place. So we'll stop right there. So we have this vision. It's a complex vision, right? We've already seen that. We've already read through it once. It's complex. We understand that there's complexity here. It's also comprehensive. It's a a comprehensive vision that God is giving Daniel, saying this is what's going to happen in human history in the future. From from you know from ongoing, I'm giving you a framework to understand how the world is going to work and how you're how you're going to live in it. That's basically what God is is doing for Daniel. So it's got this comprehensive plan of God. So first, right off the bat, you see 70 weeks. I told you, in Hebrew, it could be it's literally 70 sevens, and the reason it's sevens is that's how they're identifying a week, seven days a week. So he says 70 weeks are decreed for God's people. Now, the very first question we have to ask of the text, what what do those weeks represent? Does it represent years, as almost all commentators assume that it does? Or does it represent simple stretches of time that he's putting in the framework of weeks? Well, the text doesn't give us, there's no internal clues in the text about which it should be. It seems natural to me. The most natural way to take it is to think of them as years. And I'm going to come back around and get more specific on this in just a moment. So for the sake of moving forward, let's understand these 70 weeks as years in some capacity. All right? And I'll come back. I know that's a little vague, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to be more specific here in just a minute. Well, before we even really worry about what the weeks are, we get God's uh, mission statement right here. Well, we, we get the overall, what is, what is the goal, what is the overall purpose of this decree of weeks, week years? Well, we're told right here in verse 24 that God has a has a, a sixfold purpose that are encapsulated in two words. God is planning to end some things, and God is planning to establish some things. So what is the goal of moving his people through history? Well, first to end, and he says it right here, to to finish or to end uh, transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity. So he's going to end iniquity through a a great atonement. That's at first, so what God wants to end is rebellion, sin, and iniquity. And so we're looking at this cosmic purpose to cleanse the people of God from the things that separate them from him. That's the point. Sin and rebellion and transgression Are an obstacle between humanity and God. And God is saying, My ultimate goal for my people is to remove those obstacles so that I can welcome you in. So, right there, we know, regardless of how we understand the weeks, we know the overarching frame or the overarching theme of them to end. But God also says that He wants to establish some things. What does he say? He says, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, and to bring an everlasting righteousness, to establish righteousness. God wants to establish righteousness. And when he talks about sealing both vision and profit, here it merits a little bit of discussion. Some people think of sealing it and hide it, and seal it up for a later time. That's not what Daniel is talking about here. It seems to me, in the establishment of righteousness, sealing both the vision and the prophet, what, what would a king often do to make something official? He would take a signet ring and seal it to say this is official. So what God is doing, what, what God is speaking here, he's talking about establishing righteousness and vision and prophet being representative of his word, the word of the Lord through the vision and prophet. So establishing righteousness, establishing the veracity and truth and authority of his word. And he says, and anoint a most holy place and renewal... Of his people through restoration. So, at the very least, we understand what the 70 weeks are meant to help us learn. But we also need to look at this and understand that these are big ideas and they're going to take time to be worked out. And so, we come now to Daniel trying to figure out how do these get worked out? Well, that's what verses 25, 26, and 27 tell us. So right off the bat, he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Let's stop right there. So within this seven weeks, there is a restoration and a renewal that's happening on a local level in, in Israel. So this seven weeks... Now is a great time to let you understand how I understand the weeks. I, don't, I think that the, the weeks are getting at years that pass, but I think the purpose of the weeks is to communicate stretches of time, stretches of time in which God will work and do specific things in the lives and hearts of his people. You may disagree, and that's okay, but that's how I understand it. So we're looking at this first seven weeks, a shorter, let's call it a shorter stretch of time, wherein something is going to happen uh, specifically for the people of Israel. To restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. I understand the anointed one here and the prince to be Cyrus, because a year later, a year after this, Cyrus is giving the decree to send the, the Israelites back to Jerusalem to begin the rebuilding process. One of the reasons I take it to be Cyrus because in, in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, Cyrus is there again called, my, God calls him my anointed one, who is going to you know, help get uh, Jerusalem reestablished. And so given the fact that Cyrus is about to send them home, that God is about to answer Daniel's plea to end the exile, it makes sense to me that we look at this prince who is to come, and in this stretch of time, he's going to send the Israelites back to Jerusalem to establish their city. And think, and I'll just confess to you, the word "their anointed one, is the word Messiah. It, it is. That's the, the, the word that's used in the Old Testament. We need to understand at this point in biblical history, that word did not carry all the weight that it did by the time that Jesus came. Because David was called a Messiah. Saul, the first king of Israel, was called a Messiah. Priests and kings were all anointed ones, per se. So you have Cyrus here sending the people back to rebuild the city. That will happen in 538 B.C. All right, so he moves on. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again, with squares and moat against his caveat, but in troubled times. What is the 62 weeks? Well, the 62 weeks is an extended period of time, a long period of time where the people of God, in centuries even, live in distress and hard times. Yes, the city is rebuilt, Yes, the temple is rebuilt. Yes, you've been reestablished in your land. And yes, it's going to be hard and difficult. Beloved, he's painting a picture for how it is to be human on the earth in a sin-cursed world. But this is where I don't like this is where I don't like to get dogmatic about times, years and frameworks about this particular paragraph paragraph because dogmatic insistence on times and frameworks they lead to significant problems. They, they cause us to try to, I mean, I can't tell you how many, one, how many uh, versions of this are read where, well, you have a math problem, just to start off. When Daniel gets this vision, it's way more than 490 years from the time of the vision to time of Christ. So we, we've got a math problem right out of the gate. How do we deal with it? Well, we can get dogmatic about time frames, but then we start having to move the start date for when these visions are actually supposed to start. Well, some see it starting now, some see it in 444 BC when Artaxerxes uh, sends the people back and and, uh, the wall and the temple are rebuilt, and some people try to make the landing spot be Antiochus, and some people try to make the landing spot be Jesus, and some people try to make the landing spot be way more eschatological than that, and so forth and so on. But what, I, what I've come to understand and believe is that God is not trying to be dogmatic about years. He's just saying for an extended period of time, there's going to be suffering and hardship. And even though, even in the exile, your hearts didn't change and you're going to continue to struggle. You're going to continue to struggle with sin and struggle with enemy and struggle with death. And so God is preparing Daniel and the people of God for hard times through the successive years. And he says this, Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So after that long stretch of time, the anointed one in this particular verse is Jesus. And there's a few reasons to think this. God tell the, the the anointed one pointing us to Jesus. The the so let's see where were we? Cut off and shall have nothing. That word there, cut off in Hebrew, the implication of it is death. So it's not just to be cut off and and, and made separate from. It's to be killed. And so Daniel is anticipating the coming of King Jesus of the Messiah. Who after the city had been restored and after all the things that done and nothing had changed among the people there's got to be a better answer it's not just having your home it's not just having your temple it's not just having your city something's got to change our hearts and the anointed one comes and the way that he changes our hearts is by taking all our muck and dying with it and rising back up and giving us his righteousness in life And so God tells us that and after the 62 weeks, the no one shall come and be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince, who is the one to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now, after Jesus comes and is cut off, you have a tumultuous time and in about 70 or 80, 70 you have Roman General Titus who comes to Jerusalem and destroys it all. So there is no city, there is no wall, there is no temple. It's gone in eighty 70. We're living, and Jesus inaugurates the last days by his life and death, and so now we're living in a stretch of time where we are in desolations that are decreed and waiting for Jesus to come and fully and finally restore his people. God is telling Daniel, I'm going to finish verse 27 then, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. I'm going to get to who that he is there. And for half the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. God is telling Daniel that we are locked in a war with the world and the kingdom of darkness until the very end. And so this applies, the application to this paragraph, is applies to all time and beyond. It applies to the present and beyond. It applies to the past. But God is telling us this is the reality for the people of God. And, and this, this, this vision clearly had aspects of historical fulfillment. I mean, Persia came, or Babylon came, Persia came, Greece came, Rome came, just like God said they would. Antiochus came and Jesus came. And we live, beloved, we live in the reality of desolations and ongoing war. This is the ongoing reality for the people of God. So what is the message here? Well, simple, difficult, but simple. Times are difficult. Live for God, trust in God, hope in God. Life will be hard was the message to Daniel. It's the message to us. Final week. So right here, you see, and the people of the prince who is to come, that word prince there is signifying the great enemy of our soul, the one who wages war with God, the prince. And then it says in verse 27, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. That word there, the word in Hebrew there for strong covenant, you know what it implies? Coerciveness. It's coercive. So he leads people into a, let's call it a covenant of slavery. That's what it is. A coercive covenant of slavery where he owns and controls. He's forcibly using people to the detriment of others. And we see this in human history. We see this throughout human history. We see it in our own context. We see it in our workplaces. We see it on a global scale. We see it in relationships. We see the work. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and to divide and conquer. And that's exactly what he's telling us here, that Daniel is telling us here. He'll make a strong covenant with many for one week, a coercive covenant for one week, and half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Some people try to apply this to Jesus, that his once-for-all sacrifice put an end to sacrifice and offering. When you see the phrase to end sacrifice and offering in the Old Testament, it is never used in a positive context, ever. So we're talking about one who comes to disrupt the worship of God and the God's people until God judges him. And on the wing of abominations, he shall come who makes desolate until the creed end is poured out on the desolator. So right now, Jesus has made a significant victory at the cross in limiting the power of Satan, but we are waiting until he is fully and finally defeated at the end of all things. Beloved, is it curious to you is it curious to you that Daniel gets a vision for 70 weeks after just having prayed about an exile that was supposed to end after 70 years? It was very curious to me throughout this week. What is the connection there? 70? 70? Do you know? Here's, what I, here's the conclusion I came to. They're very much connected. God had sent his people into exile for 70 years, and we were already told in Daniel's prayer in the previous paragraph that their hearts did not turn to the Lord even in exile that they turned to idolatry, that they turned to all of the things. And within that 70 years, the Lord said, turn back to me, come back to me, come to me. And they wouldn't do it. And so the 70 weeks, this expansive time, God has imposed on his people, okay, you wouldn't come back to me in the 70 years, now you will walk through the valley of shadow until Jesus comes. And then you will have to walk with Jesus until he returns. There is very much a connection to the 270s. One was an initial attempt for people to change their hearts, and the final one is the assurance that hearts will eventually change in Christ. It is a beautiful connection. We don't have to know every mystery to know God's leading us somewhere. With all that we can discern from this paragraph in Daniel, beloved, there is much that still remains unknown and speculative. My feeble attempt doesn't even get at all the depths that are in this paragraph. What is the main idea here that we can discern? God is in control of human history, and he's faithfully leading us to a glorious end? That's not trite, and that's not throwaway. That's beautiful. That's why Jesus came. He came to endure all the desolations of God and the world that we might be restored and rescued. He was desolated for you and me if you are in him this morning. And so the refrain of Daniel is that Yahweh is in control and we must let that truth shape what we do and how we live. The weeks are what they are. If you can just grasp that, God has a plan and he's moving us in a direction faithfully beloved, then we get the gist of this paragraph. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word this morning and its power. Thank you for the truth of it. Thank you for its beauty and scope, even the complexity. God, thank you. Help us, O oh, oh, Father, to move forward, to go forward in faith, not fear, to go forward with hunger and thirst for righteousness, not for the things of this world, and to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray that you would transform us, O Lord, and use this word to speak to us more and more, more deeply and more deeply, and help us to be more like you. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.